Well, I want to start by talking about spare tires. When was the last time you thought about your spare tire? All right, spare tires are great when you need them, but we don't normally think about them. We don't pay attention to them until we're in a jam and we desperately need them, and all of a sudden they become very important and very necessary to our lives. I remember in my first year after graduating from college, I taught English at Tippecanoe Valley High School, and on one particular morning, I was driving to work, so I was heading down 15 south, and just south of the high school, I got a flat tire. And so I, I pulled into some stranger's driveway there, I got off of 15, and I um, got the jack out, and I jacked up the car, and I got the flat tire off, and then I found the spare tire, and it was flat too. <laughs> then what do you do? That was a new one. Uh, so I, I called up, okay, so my wife was already up in Goshen at work, and so I called up Dan Pacheco Jr., who had been my roommate the previous year at Grace and a friend for life, but, uh, and said, hey, can you pick me up? He said, sure, but all I got is a scooter. <laughs> and so he, he picked me up, and I just left my car in this stranger's uh, driveway, and he drove me on his scooter all the way to Tippecanoe Valley High School, my, my tie flapping in the wind, you know. And I, I got there late, but I did, I did get there. Uh, but, but, you know, spare tires, uh, man, we, we recognize that we need them. They're a safety feature on our vehicles, on our cars, but we don't pay much attention to them. We don't care about them. Normally, we go about our way. There are more important things when it comes to our vehicle. So why on earth am I talking about spare tires? I mean, what, what's that got to do with anything? Well, this is the deal. This is kind of how God's people in Judah were treating God. Well, as a, as a nice safety and security feature, but not the most important thing. Not something that you pay attention to all the time. I'm going to talk about it in terms of religious ritualism. So we're going to take a closer look at that topic today. And this is something that the prophets repeatedly accused and warned the people about. Religious ritualism. So, last Sunday, we entered the prophets. Remember, we talked about them as God's spokesmen, his mouthpiece to his people. They were like covenant lawyers who warned the people when they were breaking the covenant. Hey, stop. You're going in the wrong direction here. Uh, watch out. And they warned them in three areas where they consistently warned the people and accused them of breaking the covenant was idolatry, injustice, and religious ritualism. We're going to start with the last one today, religious ritualism. Now, we use different names for it today, but it's still around. It still exists. There's nothing new under the sun. Um, <clears throat> when I was young in this church, I remember there was a time when there were lots of discussions and even sometimes arguments about something we called carnal Christians. Carnal Christians. And I think that was just a term that we used at that time for religious ritualism. Now, I haven't heard that term, carnal Christians, for decades. Nowadays, we're more prone to talk about 
cultural Christianity. What is cultural Christianity? Cultural Christians are people who claim to be Christ followers, but their lives, their lifestyle, doesn't match up with what they profess. For one reason or another, there can be a variety of reasons for this, they want to be known as Christians, but they do not want to submit to Jesus Christ as Savior and Lord. They have not made that commitment of trust and faith. They may attend church, they may participate in different activities, but they kind of leave their faith at the door as they leave. There is no heart commitment to the one true God. There's no dependence on him. There's no tough, costly obedience to him. Instead, in almost every respect in their lives, they are determined by the culture around them. That's what really influences and determines them. Now, this is a danger for all of us, right? to be more impacted and defined by our culture than by our faith and by the word of God. So this is nothing new, though. The prophet spoke about this same problem in relationship to Judah. So we're going to take a look at one instance of this. I could have chosen many. In fact, that was my, my challenge this last week, is deciding which one of these passages should I choose. So I invite you to take your uh, Bibles, uh, print or digital, and turn to Jeremiah chapter 7. Jeremiah chapter 7. And if you want to uh, take hold of that Bible that's in front of you in the rack, you can find Jeremiah chapter 7 on page 620. Page 620. Now let me tell you a bit about Jeremiah as you're looking that up. It may take you a moment to find that. Jeremiah's ministry focused on the southern kingdom, the two tribes of Judah and Benjamin. And the reason for that was because the northern ten tribes of Israel had long since been taken into captivity by Assyria. They they didn't even exist anymore by this point. So Jeremiah's ministry, his focus was on Judah. And he lived during this difficult time when he warned and predicted that if the people didn't repent and turn back to God that Babylon was going to come and destroy Jerusalem and the temple. And Jeremiah lived during that time and experienced all of that. So that's the prophet Jeremiah. So let's uh, jump in. The first thing that we notice here is that true worship is about a changed heart, not a place or a ritual. It's about a changed heart. It's not about a place or a, a certain rite. Let's uh, dive in here, Jeremiah chapter 7, starting with verse 1. This is the word that came to Jeremiah from the Lord. Stand at the gate of the Lord's house and there proclaim this message. Now, it's like Jeremiah coming to our church building and standing out in the courtyard. And as the worshipers are coming uh, to worship, he's there in the courtyard kind of having a pre-message, right? Here's a message before the message. Here's, here's what God wants you to hear. So he's, he's talking to people who are actually coming to the temple in order to worship, and this is what he tells them as God's mouthpiece. Hear the word of the Lord, all you people of Judah who come through these gates to worship the Lord. This is what the Lord Almighty, the God of Israel, says. Reform your ways and your actions, and I will let you live in this place Do not trust in deceptive words and say, this is the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord. We're going to talk about uh, that phrase in a moment, but drop your eyes down to verse 22. 
God is continuing to speak through Jeremiah. For when I brought your ancestors out of Egypt and spoke to them, I did not just give them commands about burnt offerings and sacrifices. I didn't just give them commands about rites and rituals. But I gave them this command. Obey me, and I will be your God, and you will be my people. Walk in obedience to all I command you, that it may go well with you, so that I can bless you. But they did not listen or pay attention. Instead, they followed the stubborn inclinations of their evil hearts. They went backward and not forward. Unfortunately for the people at that time, the temple and the the rituals, the rites that took place there, the sacrifices that took place there, had become something of a talisman, a good luck charm, a rabbit's foot, if you will. As, As long as we come to the right place at the right time and do the right things, then we're safe and secure. It's kind of an insurance policy. If, if, we, if we just uh, follow through on these rites and rituals, God will protect us. In fact, God would never allow dis, uh, Jerusalem to be overtaken by the Babylonians and destroyed because the temple is here, his house. God certainly We're safe because we have the temple. The temple. The temple. It it was their mantra. We're okay because our safety is in the temple and its rites and rituals. The people had forgotten that God required obedience as a condition for enjoying his blessing. He wanted to bless them. But they needed to obey. But remember last Sunday we talked about the fact that obedience was... Uh, evidence of faith. Those who believed God and trusted God and received his word would obey it. Now, God isn't interested in rituals and rites. He's interested in our hearts and he's interested in changed hearts. Hearts that don't follow evil inclinations but hearts that follow his good ways and his good will. He wants a heart that is humble before him. Now, this again isn't new. 300 years previously, uh, King David wrote this in Psalm 51. This is a psalm of confession. And David wrote, to God, you do not delight in sacrifice or I would bring it. You do not take pleasure in burnt offerings. My sacrifice, O God, is a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart. You, God, will not despise. Obedience is more important than sacrifice. A a heart that recognizes and acknowledges its own sinful inclinations and turns to God and confesses and repents and seeks him. This kind of heart change is what God is looking for. It's not about a certain place or a certain act. Many years later, a Samaritan woman asked Jesus, hey, Where's the right place to worship? All right? And Jesus' answer was, it's not about the place. The worshipers that God is looking for are people who worship him in spirit and in truth. It's a heart thing. Now, Jesus Jesus, uh, was gentle and compelling with the Samaritan woman, but he was uh, more like Jeremiah with the Pharisees. And they were self-righteous. 
In, in fact, um, they followed all the laws, the external rituals and rites meticulously. I mean, they, they even tithed a tenth of their herbs and spices. Okay, I'm just going to tell you that when I pluck a few basil leaves off the bush to put into a recipe, it never crosses my mind to tithe on it. All right? Um, and Jesus says, fine, good, T tithe your mint. But you, that's fine, but you're missing the things that matter to me. You don't know my heart, and you haven't aligned with my heart or reflected my heart. What are the things that matter to me? Justice, mercy, faithfulness. This is, I want a changed heart. I think it's interesting that our movement of churches, so the Grace Brethren, we're now called the Karis Fellowship, we, we got our start when we decided to reject the religious ritualism that was taking place in Protestant churches in Germany uh, not long after the Reformation. And, and so we kind of rejected this doctrine of sacramentalism. And uh, Todd Scholes writes in his History of the Brethren uh, about this time in their beliefs, certain rites, okay, rites, rituals, externals, certain rites of the church are channels of God's grace and so are necessary to gain salvation. That was the idea of sacramentalism. These sacraments, so rituals or rites, are accessible only in an authorized place and through an authorized agent. In other words, a priest. And according to the teaching at that time, the faith of both the priest and the recipient had no bearing on the efficacy of the rite. So think about it. What that meant was this. An unbelieving priest could give communion to an unbelieving parishioner and the grace of God for salvation would still be exchanged. Well, do you see what that does? That, that puts a huge gulf or gap or chasm between a ritual and a rite for salvation and life. A, 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 a real relationship of knowledge and fellowship with the Lord was completely unnecessary to have a sense of security and salvation. Why? Because I did this right. Now I can live any way I want to. And the early brethren said, no, we reject that. What we, what we want to do is we want to find out what Jesus says, what the word of God says, and we want to obey it. We want to bring those things together. And we don't, we don't want to know what the Bible says and obey it in order to be saved. We recognize that that's what saved people do. We want to know the word of God and we want to obey it. That's kind of the very core of who we are and who we still want to be. Is because God's grace has redeemed us, we want to know what God says and we want to obey it by his grace and through the power of the Holy Spirit who lives in us. Unfortunately, religious, religious, uh, religious ritualism is still very alive and well today. It wasn't just something that happened in the early 1700s. When our church movement got started, kind of rejecting religious ritualism. We fall back into it very easily, by the way. So I was just talking to someone uh, the other day who's a part of our church, and uh, he said he grew up in a church uh, that was very much like this. They followed this same doctrine. And he said, you know, as a young man, I thought it was great. I could live like hell during the week. 
I could cheat and lie and steal all week long at work. I could get drunk on the weekends. I could do whatever I wanted sexually. And then on Sunday morning, I'd take the bread and the cup and, whew, safe and secure. Jeremiah, Jesus, and the Spirit today say no. True worship is not about the place or the rite, the ritual. It's about a changed heart which will evidence itself in a changed life. That's what Jeremiah is talking to the worshipers about. It's the first idea. Here's the second one, very similar. True worship is about obedience that reflects God's heart. Obedience that reflects what's important to God, who God is, what God wants. Let's pick it up, verse 5. If you really change your ways and your actions and deal with each other justly, if you do not oppress the foreigner, the fatherless, or the widow, and do not shed innocent blood in this place, and if you do not follow other gods to your own harm, then I will let you live in this place, in the land I gave your ancestors forever and ever. But look, you are trusting in deceptive words that are worthless. The temple, the temple, the temple. We've got the temple, so we are safe and secure. We can do anything that we want. The people were claiming the privileges of a covenant relationship with God without assuming the covenant responsibilities. We, we read there, God said, I rescued you from Egypt. I redeemed you from Egypt in order to bring you to myself so that we could, we could have this covenant relationship where you, I live among you and you can get to know me, the one true God, and, and learn about me and learn my ways and, and be uh, changed and transformed by them and then be a witness to the world, a light to the world, a display people to the other nations of what it looks like to have a relationship with the one true God. This is what you're called to. And yet they went backwards instead of forwards. He wanted the people to demonstrate his righteousness and justice. Righteousness and justice. The Bible in several places says righteousness and justice are the foundation of God's throne. In other words, where God rules, where God is truly worshipped, it'll be characterized by righteousness and justice. So, what are righteousness and justice? Big words packed with meaning. What are they kind of simply stated? Well, righteousness has to do with right relationships. Right relationships. Making things right in relationship. And it, 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 with all people, doesn't matter class or gender or nationality. Um, and also right with God. This is righteousness. It's right relationships. Making right relationships. Justice is whatever you have to do to make things right to restore relationships, to bring things into the proper order when it comes to relationships. <clears throat> Jesus made quite a big deal about this in the Sermon on the Mount, that, that right relationships, righteousness and justice, are, are, are the most important expression of worship. Look at this from Matthew chapter 5. Jesus said, therefore, uh, if you are offering your gift at the altar... So you're going to worship, you're going to do one of these rites and rituals, and there remember that your brother or sister has something against you. Leave your gift there in front of the altar. First, 
Go and be reconciled to them, then come and offer your gift. First, go and be reconciled. Demonstrate righteousness and justice by making the relationship right. And you, you can see why this is so important to God. I mean, he demonstrated it in order to make it possible for you and me to be reconciled with him. He gave everything. He gave himself. He gave his son to die on the cross in our place for us to pay the penalty for sin, which was keeping us from God, from having right relationship with God. And God paid an infinite price in order to make it possible that we, through faith in him, could be forgiven, justly forgiven, and made right with him. And because God is a reconciling God, righteousness and justice are the foundation of his throne, that's the kind of actions that honor him and revere him most is when, is when we're, we're thinking about right relationships, doing what is right in relationships. Now let me give you a, a little illustration of this. It happened just two weeks ago. <clears throat> so I, uh, I, w- I, I slated, I marked off, I blocked off a day with God to worship and to pray. And, <coughs> excuse me, I picked a place I was sure no one would go so that I would be undisturbed. So I picked a place called Pisgah Marsh. Ever hear of Pisgah Marsh? It's in Kosciuszko County. It's a really lovely boardwalk that is in such an out-of-the-way place that almost no one goes there. And so I thought, nobody's going to go to Pisgah Marsh, so I'm going to go. And I walk the boardwalk, and it ends at this nice little lake, and there's some benches, and it's really a lovely setting. And sure enough, uh, all morning long, no one came. It's lovely. I, I like people. I'm an extrovert. So don't get the wrong idea. But every once in a while, it's good. Um, to just be alone with God. And then about noontime, this elderly gentleman comes along. And, you know, I'm not going to ignore him, so we do the kind of uh, obligatory small talk, beautiful day, lovely view, blah, blah, blah. And then he says, as he kind of is turning to head back, yeah, it's it's a good place to come to assuage my sorrows. And I'm thinking, oh, I'm a pastor. I can't just let that one float by. So I said, oh, I'm so sorry to hear that. What are your sorrows? And he said, well, I just lost my wife. And uh, it was true. The, uh, the previous Tuesday she had died the, on the weekend had been the memorial service. And I said, oh, I'm so sorry. What was her name? And how long were you married? You know, 65 years. And, um, <clears throat> and uh, so, so I got to talking to him and and he, he, he said something about church, but they had changed churches because, because it was all just about going to church. It wasn't about, and I said, well, what are the important things? Well, you got to put your faith in Jesus and trust him. I was like, that's so good. I said, can I pray for you? Yeah. I said, I'm a pastor, by the way. And so uh, I prayed for him, and that was really great. And he turned around and sat down. And for the next hour and a half, he talked to me about his deceased wife and how they had met and their first date in detail and <laughs> and so I'm, I'm listening to this right and in my mind I'm thinking this whole time it's pressing in you're here to worship God you're here, you got to get back to worship and prayer you need to get back to worship and prayer and then it, the spirit I think was fighting back and saying this is worship <laughs> okay this chill out okay this is worship. You, this is, I, I, you came here to worship. I'm giving you a really great opportunity. All right, so do it. And so 
I, I listen mostly. I mean, listening, well, for me, for my personality type, listening is hard work. But um, <laughs> I'd rather talk. So uh, I listened intently uh, for an hour and a half. And uh, then when he was done, he just said, thank you so much. I really needed to talk to somebody. You know, and I, I, I kind of learned a lesson again along these lines of what's true worship, right? Now, praying and being alone with God is great. It's good. But in that moment, the best thing was to righteousness and justice. In that relationship, what was the right thing to do? You see? That's, that's, that's the worship that God calls us to do. Uh, when I r- read this passage in Jeremiah, I can't help but think of uh, what the brother of Jesus uh, says in James 1.27. Religion that God our Father accepts, our true religion, all right, the, the kind of, of religion that really honors God because it reflects his heart. It's obedience to him that reflects who he is. Religion that God our Father accepts as pure and faultless is this, to look after orphans and widows in their distress and to keep oneself from being polluted by the world. I, I, think, I think I know where James got this idea. <laughs> Jeremiah 7, right? And other places uh, among the prophets. He says... He, making these relationships right, the vulnerable, what practice justice. When God says in this uh, passage, act justly with each other, it, it means do what is righteous, make relationships right. This is the religion God is looking for, obedience that reflects his heart. And so I'm thankful that in many ways this church does this. This, this church does it in a lot of ways. Who are the vulnerable that, that we can uh, pursue righteousness and justice with. Well, uh, we think of immigrants here, foreigners and, and immigrants, and we have ENL as a way to, to help and to encourage and to uh, come alongside. Um, when it comes, I just, there was just a, a, a memorial service on Friday for Jean Wallace, who was a widow. And, and this church came around here with the widow's tea and with a, a, a group of women that regularly met and went out to lunch. And so she had a whole group of friends sitting. Um, uh, by the way, I, I asked them, I said, you guys are the choir because I had to lead music. And they supported me. So that was great. Uh, but they also supported her. And so, and so helping the widows. Uh, what about orphans? Well, we have the room at the table ministry that provides all kinds of necessary items for foster parents and those who are adopting, and that's awesome. And what about the unborn and pregnant mothers? There's Right to Life and Heartline, which this church is connected to and supports. Uh, What about, I think children are such a vulnerable class. Children are. And so we have Second Wind at Jefferson, and and Becky's meeting with children and teaching them in Fairlane. And we have um, Steve and Kathy Friedberg doing neighborhood uh, good news clubs and lots of people in different ways uh, stepping in and, and set right relationships, righteousness and justice with children and people who need help, who are vulnerable. But, you know, it comes down to all of us in our neighborhoods being aware, having the radar up. Uh, to, to worship God, not just in this place, doing these things, singing and looking into God's word, which is good, let's keep doing it with all of our heart, but if we take it out and we seek righteousness and justice and worship God all week long as we try to set relationships right, especially with those who are vulnerable. 
hey, by the way, check out, if you haven't already, right out the front doors is the neighborhood block party truck. And uh, that's one way to gather your neighbors and to get to know them and to and have opportunity to speak into their lives. So check that out on your way out today. Third point, true worship doesn't use religion as a cover or an excuse or a justification or rationalization for sin. Let's look at verses 9 to 11. Will you steal and murder, commit adultery and perjury, burn incense to Baal, and follow other gods you have not known, and then come and stand before me in this house, which bears my name, and say, we are safe, safe to do all these detestable things. Has this house which bears my name become a den of robbers to you? But I have been watching, declares the Lord. <clears throat> God is saying, well, you've got nerve. Yeah, you guys have nerve. Gaul, what the, that's gall right there. You break all my commandments. Let me give you some examples. Uh, steal, that's number eight in the Ten Commandments. Murder, number six. Commit adultery, number seven. Perjury, that's number nine. That's bearing false witness, right? Lying in court. Burn incense to Baal and follow other gods. That's number one and number two. You, you break all my commands, and then you think that you can show up, and because of a ritual or a rite, everything's good. You're safe to return to your detestable things. By the way, that word in Hebrew has to do with, with sexual perversions. So you go, you're going to worship me now, then you're going to go worship the Asherah pole and, and the gods and goddesses of fertility in all kinds of sexual perverted ways. You, you think you can do all of that and come here and it's okay? You don't, ha you don't have to worry about any consequences. Ah, oh, the temple, the temple, the temple. We're okay, we're good. We've got the temple. We're safe and secure. So far as God was concerned, um, the temple was like a den of robbers, right? What do robbers do? They have, their, they, they have their safe hold, their place where they hide, and then they go out and commit crimes, and they come back, and they, they hide, and the people who are looking for them can't find them, and when they're done looking for them, then they go out and commit more crimes. And he says, that's what you've made the temple into. You think it's a place of safety and security. You can go out and commit all kinds of crimes, right? And sin in so many ways, but you think you're safe and secure here. <clears throat> Jesus, by the way, referred to this passage when he cleansed the temple. You've, you've made the temple into a den of robbers, just like in Jeremiah's time. You've done it again. <clears throat> now, the gospel of grace, which, which we live under, can easily bestort, be distorted into license. Um, Paul had, had to address this abuse of grace. He, he wrote this in Romans 6. In fact, the whole chapter is about it. What then shall we sin because we are not under the law but under grace? By no means. No, please don't have that mentality that because of grace now we can do whatever we want. That's not right thinking. All right, so let's, let's boil it all down here. How do I know whether I'm a true follower of Christ or a cultural Christian? Because really, when it, what it comes down to is your view of God. Kind of foundationally, it's your view of God. What do you believe about God? Who, who are you worshiping? Because who you actually worship, that's what you believe about him, is going to determine your heart and your choices. So there's the God we want, and then there's the God who is, and they are not always the same God. They're not necessarily the same God. 
There's the God we want, and now you'll know why I talked about spare tires. Let's call him the spare tire God. That's kind of the, the God of the cultural Christian. God is a spare tire, an important safety, security feature, but not prominent. Not something we think about, something we care much about, something that we deal with very often. It's fire insurance. We, we don't reject Jesus, but we want him on our own terms. And our own terms are usually dictated by the culture. We, we want God to be kind of a very gentle, grandfatherly kind of person who lets us have our way, and we love it. And our way, like I said, is almost always determined by the culture and not by God's word. We allow the herds of commerce and culture to influence us more than the word of God. Instead of wanting to please God and do what is right in his sight, we want to do what is right in our sight and follow the evil inclinations of our own heart. In many ways, a cultural Christian is just, just adds Jesus to a plethora of other responsibilities and commitments. I was, uh, had a friend who was telling me he was talking with uh, someone from India the other week, and um, they got into a spiritual conversation, and the man from India said, yeah, I worship 300 million gods. And my friend told him, no, there's, there's one true God, and his son is Jesus, Jesus Christ. And this uh, guy from India said, oh, yeah, he's one of my 300 million. And we say, well, that's weird. And then we wonder, do we do something similar? Do, do we, oh yeah, I got Jesus. He's one of many big important things in my life. Uh, yeah, he's even on the top shelf of my life, along with about 500 other things. G we said, worthy, worthy, holy, holy, we sang. If we really mean that, then Jesus will be the only one on the top shelf. Will not be relegated uh, like a spare tire. Yeah, we want to have him around in case we get into a jam. He might be helpful. But on a day-to-day -day basis, I just do whatever the culture does. That's cultural Christianity, and it's dangerous because a person who lives that way may very well not be a Christian. That's, that's the God that we sometimes want. Who's the God who is? God is who he is, and no amount of us trying to remake him in our image is going to change his unchanging character and nature. Let's call him the GPS God. Right? He gives direction to our lives. He's not stuck as a spare tire somewhere where we can't see him. By the way, I don't, I'm not a believer in let go and let God or let God be in the driver's seat. I'm afraid we have to sit in the driver's seat of our lives and keep our hands on the wheel. That's our responsibility. But who gives the directions? Who navigates? That's the important thing. And the, the, the true God is the GPS God who gives the direction and we follow. We follow by his grace and with his help. Now, God wasn't telling the people in Jerusalem to stop sacrificing, to stop worshiping, to stop coming to the temple. He was just saying, come to the temple with the right motives, to know me, to be transformed and changed by me so that you can go out and reflect me. And I think that's the same message for today. And that's the question, that's the challenge for us. I'm not gonna give you a lot of to-dos here, just a heart check. Is the God you worship the spare tire God? Or is he the GPS of your life? And I, th I think our lives 
change and turn and go in a different direction when we realize, oh no, I've been worshiping the, the God as I want him to, meet, to be, a God of my own creation, and, but I'm turning from that and I'm choosing to get to know and to love and obey and reflect the God who is, the God who the prophets reveal. Which God, which God is your God? Which one do you worship? Are you a cultural Christian or a biblical Christian who trusts in Jesus for salvation? Salvation is by faith. But it's evidence through obedience, a heart that wants to obey and, and reflect and be transformed.